Kia ora. Good morning, morena. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be together with you. Really, really good. Hasn't it been a wonderful morning? So precious, right? So, so precious. The presence of the Lord, nothing like the presence of the Lord. It's incredible. And I think the presence of the Lord in community like this, it's just incredible. Thank you. It's been amazing. I'm blessed. Okay. This morning we are in week two of a new series, and it's called Rebuild. And it's a series in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And if you missed last week, um, as some of you were away, um, and if you haven't yet gone and listened to it, do go and listen to it. It'll give you the context and the first lessons that we have in there, the context for this book. Um, you, you need to sort of have your feet planted and know where you're coming from with this book. So rather than me repeating it, that's in your circle. Okay, <laughs> you get to do that. But let me just give you a wee bit of an idea. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, it's, it's a history book. It tells us about how God raised up a man called Nehemiah to lead a hugely significant project that was in God's heart. And it was the project of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem in Judah. So it's a book of history. We learn some history. It's also widely known and recognized as a powerful book on leadership. And it is full of leadership lessons that we can apply. We can apply them into self-leadership. If you've never thought about the fact that you can lead self, that's a good place to start. Um, We can apply them into leading others. We can apply these lessons into leading teams, and we can apply these lessons into leading whole organizations. There is enormous wisdom in this book when it comes to leadership. And today, our focus is going to be on five leadership lessons in chapter two. Now, there are other leadership lessons, but we're going to focus on five of them. These five leadership lessons you will be able to take and apply in your life, if not today, tomorrow, depending on your context, okay? So they're completely um, able to be applied. So what I want us to do is read the whole of Nehemiah 2. So I might read a little bit fast, but we'll see how we go. In the month of Nisan, not Toyota, In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, is how I say it, (laughs) um, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, this is Nehemiah speaking, and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city when my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? 
it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But with Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, nor any claim or historic right to it. Ta-da. There ends the chapter. (laughs) Oh, I just hit the microphone with my teeth. Okay, leadership lessons in the chapter. Five leadership lessons. The first leadership lesson that I want us to look at is this. Leaders lead up. When we think about leading, we often consider a bit of a triangle, a bit of a pyramid. And we think about the people at the top, the boss, and the few people that sit at the top. And we think of them as as leading all the people under them. And that is true. But there is a huge amount of leadership real estate in the middle of that pyramid. And at the bottom of that pyramid. And wouldn't it be true that most of us find ourselves somewhere in the middle, possibly at the bottom of such a pyramid, such a triangle? 
And there is an amazing ability for any one of us, no matter where we are in that triangle, to begin to lead up and to lead those who are leading us in our everyday lives. And I think that's really good news. So how do we effectively, like you'll see Nehemiah has done in this chapter, how do we effectively lead up is the question I want to ask here. Now, in a minute, we're going to go through the chapter bit by bit, and you'll be able to see principles of leading up through the story here in chapter two. But right now, I want us just to kind of uh, pull over into a bit of a loading bay, all right? Because I have come across a guy, and many of you will have as well. He's a leadership guru, and his name is John Maxwell. And he has written a book, and it's called The 360-Degree Leader. And his little subline of his title is Developing Your Influence from Anywhere in the Organization. And he has got nine lead-up principles that I think we're just going to benefit, uh, be benefited by if we will just have a quick look at them, all right? So nine lead up principles. The first one, as you can see them on the screen, the first one is lead yourself. Lead yourself, in fact, exceptionally well. You cannot lead what you don't live. So start at home with yourself. The second principle is lighten your leader's load. Make things easier for those who are above you organizationally. Go the extra mile with things. It's funny, Zig Ziglar says there are no traffic jams on the second mile, on the extra mile. You will find space there if you go the extra mile. Um, Third principle, be willing to do what others won't do. Think about your team. Think about your classroom. Think about your home. Be willing to do what others won't do. Take the tough jobs. Put your hand up. Have a whatever it takes kind of attitude. Here's a thought. Volunteer at work. Be that person. The fourth principle, do more than manage. Actually lead. Managers are great. Managers work primarily with processes. Leaders work primarily with people. Be more people-focused than process-focused. The fifth principle is invest in relational chemistry. Really get to know your leader and connect with them and, and what they care about. Build relationship with your leader and build emotional currency with them. Don't be one of those team members who just waits for it to come to you. Be proactive in that. Build with your leader. The sixth principle, and I love this one, come well prepared. Every time you take your leader's time, because the leader's time is precious and they are gifting you this time with them. Um, Maxwell, uh, John Maxwell suggests that you should spend 10 times as much time preparing for the time that you're going to spend with your leader than the time you spend with your leader. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? So don't just come in there and sit there and wait to be solved or <laughs> talked to or whatever. Come ready. Here are my questions. Here are my reports. Here's, what, here's my suggestions. Here are the challenges, and let's talk through solutions. Come ready to the leader. 
The seventh principle is know when to push and when to back off. Know when to speak up and when to shut up. I think this is learnt over time. The eighth principle is become a go-to player. So become the person that your boss turns to when they are under pressure. Become the person when when there is a lot going on and, and now we, we've got this and we've got that. Become the person that they know, I can go to this person on the team and I can rely on them. Become that person. And the ninth one is be better tomorrow than you are today. Be growth-oriented rather than just goal-oriented in your workplace as well as everywhere else that you operate. So I thought those were some great principles for us to just load up on, go into the loading bay, bay load up on them. And now we're going to go back into the story, and I want you to just kind of keep um, your radar out there for how Nehemiah puts some of these principles into place. Not all of them, but some of them, all right? So here we are, back in the story, back in chapter 2, and Nehemiah has decided after four months of, of preparation, of planning, processing, and praying, lots of P's for four months, that today is the day to go in to speak to the king. And he's, he's just doing his normal nine-to-five job, serving wine to the king. That's his job. The king is his boss. But he chooses to do something that is out of the ordinary. What Nehemiah chooses to do is to express on his face and in his demeanor that he is sad, that he is troubled. Now, not many of us would cause shockwaves by showing up at work without a smile. Let's be honest. In fact, some of us might cause shockwaves turning up to work with a smile. But in Nehemiah's world, in the world of the palace, it was illegal for the cupbearer to look grumpy or sad. He could be executed for it. How would you like that as one of the policies at work? You see, the thing was, the idea was that the king was such a fabulous person that just being in his presence would make you forget all your troubles. So if you turned up to the king looking troubled, it's an insult to him. Because where's his greatness now? Where's his fabulousness now? And so you could have your life taken. And Nehemiah knew this. This was a death penalty kind of issue. And so Nehemiah wanted to get his boss's attention, so he courageously chose to appear sad. He needed to affect the king. He needed to influence the king. He needed to lead up. And the door is now open for Nehemiah to tell the king his concerns for his people and for his city. And he is terrified. But still he speaks. And he speaks with great respect. He doesn't come in there and speak to the king with a sense of entitlement or a chip on his shoulder, which he had, boy, he had every right to, really. He's part of a displaced people group, and the king is the one who displaced them, right? He's the, it's the Persians, and this is the king of the Persian Empire. But instead of coming in there with an attitude like that, he comes in with great respect. Imagine going to your boss and saying, Oh, boss, may you live forever. That's, that's what he does. Try that tomorrow morning. Oh, boss, may you live forever. And that's what he does. So he comes in there and he's very polite. Um, of course, he would be killed if he wasn't, but that's another reason for that. Um, but the king then has a very important question in verse 4. The king says this to him, and I love this question. He says, what 
do you want? This is an empowering question. When was the last time that you asked this of yourself in your self-leadership? What is it that I want? When was it the last time that this was used in a work situation? What do you want? You see, we get really, really clever and good and skilled at putting language, lots of language around what we don't want. I'm sick of this and I'm sick of that and I don't want this and I don't want that. But we actually need to train ourselves and teach ourselves to positively articulate what I do want. You see, and it takes your brain to a whole other place as well. But it opens up a different conversation. I love the king asks this question. Um, and I think this is a question we can prepare ourselves with every day. And Nehemiah has rehearsed. He has, he has, he has presented to himself before he presents to the king a positively phrased request. He's got it all ready. He's ready for this question. He also knows, though, that by asking this question, his life could be taken from him. Or he could be completely ignored by the king and refused by the king. So there's no guarantees in this, but he has an answer. But before he gives that answer, knowing how things are hanging in the balance for him in that moment, what we learn in verse 4 is that he does something really powerful, really spiritual, and he prays. Now, he's already been in preparation for four months. He's been praying over this thing for four months. But in the presence of the king, before he then opens his mouth and shares what's in his heart with the king, he sends up a prayer. Have you done that before? Did you know that no matter what, you're on a phone call, you're walking into an office, you're interacting with a child, you're about to meet the teacher, you're whatever the situation, you can send up, no matter how much preparation you've done, how much prayer prep, thinking prep, planning prep, you can send up a prayer in a moment. Lord, help me. Help. We call those arrow prayers. I love those prayers. They're always there. You've always got a quiver full of arrows, ready to just shoot one up at any moment. Use those quivers. Use, I mean, arrows. Use those arrows, right? Help me, Lord. And Nehemiah then positively phrases his request. He says, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. That is what he's asking for. It's a positive request. He gives a time frame. And then he says specifically, this is what I need. This guy is ready for the meeting. And he says, I need, please, letters from you to the governors so that they will give me safe passage through their land. I also need from you, King, I need a specific letter to a specific man. I need a letter to Asaph because he runs all the timber milling businesses and I need timber. I need timber for the gates and the walls and, and, and I need timber for my own house. He's asking a big request, isn't he? He's bold. This is quite, is the word audacious? That would sort of sum this up. This, he's, he's just asking for whatever he's got prepared. And the King says yes. And then the king says, and you know what? I'm going to throw in some soldiers. I'm going to throw in some horses. Here you go. Take more than what you've asked for. And Nehemiah knows why. In verse 8, Nehemiah says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. He knows where this is coming from. In fact, last week we saw the prayer he prayed for this in chapter 1, verse 11. And right now we're seeing it answered. In chapter 2. Isn't that cool? 
Don't underestimate the power of God. That God, God can take a Persian king and do what he's doing right here to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That Persia ransacked. God, what can't God do? Sorry. Where, where can God not interact in your world? Who is beyond him shaping and using them for his purposes? No one. If he can take a Persian king, he can take your boss, he can take your colleague, he can take your husband, your wife, your friend, your kid, your, and he can do something powerful. Leaders lead up. Second leadership lesson out of the five, leaders act. Verse 9, Nehemiah says, so I went. You know, leaders act. They don't just get emotional over an issue. They don't just get worked up over an issue. They don't just talk about the needs. They do something. A friend of ours, a pastor in Nairobi, he talks about, he says, you know what I'm sick of seeing? He says, I'm sick of seeing so many people who call themselves leaders. They pick up, like, it's like they pick up their gun and they ready their gun and they're ready and then they aim and they aim and they aim and they aim, and they aim, and they aim, and they never fire. Leaders have to fire, right? They've got to act. They've got to move. And that is what Nehemiah does. So he sets out. He sets out with the king's blessings, with the letters of authority, with the timber, with the soldiers, with the cavalry. And what is the first thing that happens? Looking in the text. Enemies emerge. You see, there's a funny thing that happens. God's work disturbs God's enemies. It always happens. And we meet a couple of them right here in verse 10. Their names are Sanballat. He's a Moabite from a city of Moab called, how so it translates, Horonam. And so they call him here in the text a Horonite. And Tobiah, he's an Ammonite official. And these are two regional governors. They're serving under the king of Persia. They've got a bit of power, in other words. And and they're a bit scary. And they want to throw their weight around here. And they don't like what they're hearing. They hear about Nehemiah's proposed work. And it says here they are very much disturbed. Their feathers are ruffled. They are not happy with what they are hearing. Now, now the, Nehemiah doesn't meet them at this point, but it's almost like this. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Right? So it's, it's, it's like, you're going to hear of these guys again. <laughs> but we're just letting you know, they're there. All right? And then we move on. Interesting, huh? So leaders lead up. Leaders act. And then the third leadership lesson is leaders examine the walls. And so Nehemiah, he goes to Jerusalem and he spends three days. And after three days, he takes a few guys and they go out at night and they only take the one horse. And in other words, they're keeping a low profile and they go out under the cover of darkness. And Nehemiah, he hasn't told a soul about what God had put in his heart, as it says in verse 12, to do for Jerusalem. He hasn't told a soul. You see, as a leader, this is something we have to learn when we're leading, he understands the precarious timing of sharing a vision. 
And so at this point, he's told no one. And so going counterclockwise around the city, under the cover of darkness, he examines the walls, and they are broken, and the gates, and they are burned. And this word examines, this is actually a word used in a medical context. And what it means is to probe a wound to find out the extent of the damage. That sounds painful to me. I don't want my wounds probed. Do you? But that's exactly the word chosen here. Do you know it takes courage to examine the walls of our souls? It takes courage to examine the walls of our marriages, of our friendships, our ministries, our church, our situations at work, our projects. It takes courage. Some of us only want to know, in all honesty, we, some of us only want to know what's going well. And so we avoid what is faulty. We avoid seeing what is broken. We walk around with eyes wide shut. That is not helpful. Others of us seem to have the spiritual gift of fault finding. It's not in the Bible as a gift from the Holy Spirit. But we see it as our responsibility to point out all the cracks, all the imperfections, all the little missits, right? That's not helpful either. In your marriage, in your soul, in your family, in your friend, in your church, in your project, in your team. I wonder which end of the spectrum you tend towards eyes wide shut or a fault finder. Leaders, leaders lead up. Leaders act. Leaders examine the walls. And we have to learn with a spirit of positivity and with vision to accurately assess the situation and be ready to act. The fourth leadership lesson is that leaders inspire others to act. Once Nehemiah had a clear idea of the issues they had in front of them, he went to the people after examining the walls, and he inspired them to act. And this is how he did it. First of all, he presented to them the problem. He said, the walls are in ruins. The gates are burned. This is a disaster. And they caught that holy discontent that they needed to catch that was already in the heart of Nehemiah. Secondly, he invited them in to the solution. He said, come, let us rebuild. And so they experienced the fellowship of the solution. Let's be part of this together. And then thirdly, he painted for them the future, the visionary future. He said, and then we will no longer be in disgrace. It's going to be great. And they caught the hope as a team. And then he shared with them the supernatural story. He was able to share with them the God story. He was able to show them this is bigger than you and me. This is bigger than a moment in time. This isn't birthed in me. This is birthed in heaven. 
And they were able to take courage from that. And he must have done a good job because, because they signed up. They bought in. They said, count us in. And the good work began. Leaders inspire others to act. And you know what? It would be really nice if the chapter finished right there. And we could you know, pat each other on the back and say, go do it. That's cool. But it doesn't. There's a little bit more of the chapter where we reach lesson five. Leaders keep going. No sooner than the good work began, than the opposition rose up in response to the work of God. The names we heard earlier, they take their first stab right now. And, and it's funny, actually. Already the group has grown. I don't know if you noticed that when we read it through or if you've ever thought about this before. But before we, we had Sanballat and we had Tobiah. Well, now j- just go through you know, the rest of the chapter and suddenly we've got Geshem. Geshem the Arab. You know what? There is never, I, there's a guarantee in leadership that I'd like to give you right now. There is never a lack of opposition. There is never a lack of people who will criticize, people who will fault find, people who will want to get in the way and stop a good work. And, and that's wherever that is. And so we find that the group has grown. The funny thing is it continues to grow through the book of Nehemiah. And so these people, they rise up and they take their stab and they've got a couple of techniques. The first technique they use is um, mocking and ridicule, it says in verse 19. They mocked and they ridiculed. Their goal is to undermine Nehemiah, to make him question himself, to make him doubt himself. It's a little bit of a, who do you think you are? You don't know what you're doing technique. It's mocking and ridicule, and it's a very popular tool of the opposition. Funnily enough, it's something we do to ourselves as well. And it's, it's so big, it's so common, it's got a name. It's called the imposter syndrome, where we say to ourselves when God calls us to something, who do I think I am? I can't do this. How do I think that I would know how to do this? And so we can actually be our own opposition. That's kind of crazy. There's enough opposition. So their first technique is mock and ridicule. Their second technique is to infuse fear. They say, oh, are you rebelling against the king? In other words, you're going to get in trouble. Fear, fear. The interesting thing is, as we know, they didn't actually know what they were talking about. They did not even have the facts straight, the fact that the king had sent these guys. Oh, opponents to the work of God are often puffed up with pride and misinformation. They speak as if they know all the answers. They try to make you afraid of the kings. Have you been there? Maybe you are there right now. What can we learn from Nehemiah's response to this? And this is where we finish the chapter. I came across a fantastic uh, quote from a commentator who wrote on this, and it's quite a long quote, so I'll let you know when the quote is done, okay? Um, So in case you think I'm going into my words and he doesn't get the credit. Anyway, he doesn't get the credit because I can't remember his name, but I could find that out if you want me to. Um, Anyway, I don't get the credit. That's the main point. Okay, so here he goes. This This is Nehemiah's response. Quote, Nehemiah did not give a point-by-point reply. He did not show the document proving the king's support of the project. 
If he did, Sanballat and Tobiah would have just claimed it was a forgery or would have come up with another objection. Nehemiah knew that hearts that refuse to be convinced will never be convinced. Nehemiah didn't put the work on hold while a crisis response team figured out the best way to answer Sanballat and Tobiah. He wasn't going to let them sidetrack him. He had a work to do and he was going to do it. If you allow your enemies to get you to stop what you should be doing and give all your attention to them, then your enemies have won. End quote. Oh, just about started talking. In other words, Nehemiah simply calls it. He's like, you know what? This is God's mission. God is the God of heaven. He will give us success. We are his servants. We will do the work. You have no part in it. End of conversation. Leaders get on with the job, even in the face of opposition. Five leadership lessons we can put into place straight away. Leaders lead up. Leaders act. Leaders examine the walls. Leaders inspire others to act. And leaders keep going in the face of opposition. I hope that's helpful to you and your leadership journey. Remember, you can apply this to self-leadership, the leadership of others, the leadership of teams, the leadership of entire organizations, and church, and your work, and your family, and your world, wherever that is. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. At the end of the service, we have a prayer team who are available. They come and stand at the front on both sides of the stage over here and over here. And they're available to pray. If you've got something going on in your world that this is related to or something that's not, that is not related to this, it doesn't matter. But you can come and receive prayer. But let me pray for you in your leadership situations right now. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord. The God of heaven is the God we pray to. God of heaven, we come before you and we thank you for the wisdom in this book. Our Father, we thank you for the leadership lessons that we have in the Bible. Thank you that that you are all wise. Only you have leadership nailed. Only you are the great and perfect leader. And Father, we want to learn. We want to grow in our leadership of self of others, of teams, and of organizations. And Almighty God, I just want to pray particularly for those who are going through real challenges right now in their leadership. Lord, I pray that you will speak to them and encourage them and give them the wisdom that they need. I pray that you will give them favor with kings in the places of influence. Would you give them favor? Help them to walk according to your ways and help them to keep going, Lord. Father, would you give us the same courage when it comes to leading ourselves? And Father, would we be vigilant, um, committed in self-leadership, wise self-leadership? So Father, we thank you. We bless you for this beautiful book. We commit our way to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.